Today's show is brought to you by Spoon Mob. Welcome to Spoon Mob. It's the place to find great chef interviews, interviews with sommeliers, course breakdowns, restaurant experience recaps, food and travel news, and a whole lot in between. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Visit the website SpoonMob.com. And don't forget to check out the podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms. So give us a listen. Give us a follow. Welcome to Spoon Mob. And now for your feature presentation. One or two or three or four but five or five. Hello and welcome to the Force 5 podcast. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving and if you shopped on Black Friday or if you're shopping today on Cyber Monday, I hope you picked up some movies. I certainly did. Thank you to Vinegar Syndrome, who always takes a good portion of my paycheck. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and today's guest is the extremely talented Phil Iscove. He's a podcaster, producer, writer, and is probably best known for creating the Fox TV show Sleepy Hollow and his show Podcast Like It's. 1999 or 1989 if you're a Patreon subscriber. The topic he chose was top five movies about writing, and I'm excited for you to hear our list because we talked about some great films, and uh, Phil just seems like an all-around good dude. He was a really great guest. Last week's show with Rosa Parra was also pretty well-received. Five awesome Latinx films. We got some great recommendations across social media. Again, if you want to participate, at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and uh, some Reddit stuff too. Across the interwebs, we had Protolol. He says, and he or she says, and your mother too from 2001. Depressing, realistic story, but it's an excellent Mexican film. It's gross that teenagers are doing stuff like that in real life. And in the movie, there are lots of uncomfortable situations in a realistic way, which made me value my friendships even more. Juas or Was 0303 says, Sin Nombre. Turok 1134 says, El Infierno, one of my favorite Mexican movies of all time. Bleak, disturbing, but also hilarious. It almost feels like something Martin McDonough would make. That's got me, uh, that's got my interest peaked, for sure. And uh, M. Disley says, La Misma Luna is about a mother and a son crossing the border at different times to be together. Some good recommendations there. Again, listen to that with Rosa Parra from Latinx Lens. Great episode from last week. One other thing, I uh, over on Letterboxd this past week, I posted a list of Christmas horror films. And this is not just any list, this is a definitive list. This list of Christmas horror films has 170 movies on it. So if you are in the mood for some Christmas-themed horror, head over to letterbox.com backslash force5. I've got the list there for all to see, 170-plus Christmas holiday horror-themed films. So uh, yeah, go check that out. I also want to talk real quick about a couple things I've been watching this week. I saw a real eclectic mix of stuff, starting with the Arnold Schwarzenegger holiday classic, question mark, Jingle All the Way from 1996. Every holiday season, there's one toy everyone has to have. I want the Turbo Man action figure with the arms and legs that move, and the Walking Roar jetpack, and the Boomerang shooter. Getting it is every child's dream. Whoever doesn't can be a real loser. Finding it. You got the doll, right? Is this father's nightmare. I'll get that toy. I promise. Whoa! Nothing like waiting till the last minute, I would say. Especially on Christmas Eve. Turbo Man, you're mine! 
your Christmas spirit. The last one just left. Now, it's two fathers. This is war. One mission. Oh, poor baby. <laughs> and every man for himself. I'm thinking maybe, though, know, we could join up as a team. You know, like, like Starskin Huts. We're a late delivery of Turbo Man at Toy Wars. Let's go. Howard Langston, a guy who would rather sell mattresses than hang out with his family, struggles to snap up a Turbo Man action figure on Christmas Eve in the pre-eBay world. Now he'll do whatever it takes to get the elusive doll, including assaulting people, breaking and entering, infiltrating a counterfeit toy ring, and performing dangerous stunts that could have killed dozens of innocents. And yes, this is a kid's film. I had seen Jingle All the Way before when I was a teen. I think probably saw it in theaters when it first came out. I always thought of it as a fun turn for Arnold Schwarzenegger, essentially playing Harry Tasker from True Lies, but only the boring part of his persona, and it was also really the only Sinbad movie that I could ever sit through from start to finish, as he's a supporting character and a pretty entertaining one in this, in this film. Watching it as an adult, however, it's funnier, but I think it's also way more disturbing. The setup is that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays this guy, Howard, who is so busy selling stuff that he doesn't have a lot of time to spend with his family. And he misses his kid's karate belt ceremony, and the only way he sees to make it up to him is to find this Turbo Man doll, one that he was supposed to pick up two weeks ago, but forgot about. Sinbad plays a mailman, a divorced father who's trying to get the same doll for his kid, and the two keep clashing at the locations where the doll might turn up. Phil Hartman adds another fun wrinkle to Arnold's neighborhood, another divorced dad whose goals include giving his son a good Christmas and banging all the women on the block. The film's message is a condemnation of consumerism, allowing us to laugh at the ridiculousness of holiday shoppers as they trample each other in the search of the season's hottest ticket. We've all been there, from the Tickle Me Elmo to the PlayStation 5, as supplies deplete and demand soars. Predictably, it heads towards an ending in which the kid is the one who teaches everybody a lesson about sharing and what's really important during the holidays, and everything seems fine when it's all said and done. Howard realizes the most important thing in the world isn't actually the mattresses of strangers, but rather his own family, and Sinbad gets to check a Turbo Man action figure into the police station that hopefully retains its value when he gets out of prison. If that last part sounds strange, believe me, it is. As Arnold and Sinbad try and get the upper hand on each other in search of Turbo Man, each commits felonies that would undoubtedly get them sent to the big house for a very, very long time. These escapades include faking a mail bomb inside of an occupied radio station, giving the police an actual mail bomb which blows up in the hands of an officer who, had this been real life, would have spent Christmas in a fucking grave, and co-opting a Christmas parade in a dangerous display of violence, one that sees Sinbad chase a child up a giant Christmas tree decoration on top of a building, which topples and probably should have killed them, as Arnold throws uncontrollable projectiles and flies around the crowded streets with an out-of-control jetpack, even sending him through an apartment window, nearly killing a family as they sit down to eat Christmas Eve dinner. Side note, the jetpack scene has some of the funniest-looking late 90s CGI this side of the lawnmower man. As the film crawls to a close, Turbo Man finally reveals to his wife and son that it was mild-mannered mattress salesman Howard Langston all along in a scene that will leave you thinking, how did they not know it was him, considering he has a very distinctive face and voice? Maybe he just doesn't want to be at home because his family is just really stupid. Anakin Skywalker decides that Sinbad's kid might need the toy more than him, so he hands it over. Sinbad is happy that his kid will have a good Christmas, but his joy is short-sighted as, without a doubt, he'll be spending the foreseeable future behind bars for his various crimes. At least his kid will get an action figure under the tree as a constant reminder of why his dad won't be joining them for Christmas until he's got a family of his own. 
Lampooning aside, I like Jingle All the Way. Sure, it's ridiculous, but a lot of kids' movies are. I mean, just watch Home Alone. Any of those traps would kill a human being. Arnold is certainly having fun and really hamming up his role. Sinbad is pretty funny in this, and Phil Hartman knocks it out of the park like he always did. If you somehow haven't seen this and are looking for a holiday movie that your kids are going to like and that you'll be able to laugh with, or laugh at, this is a solid entry to your Christmas watch list. I also watched the incredibly bizarre film The Laughing Dead from 1989. A bunch of weebs on an archaeological trip to Mexico visit some Mayan ruins and get more than they bargained for when they encounter a zealous group of Mexicans attempting to revive a deadly ancient ritual of their ancestors. This is a Vinegar Syndrome title, and pound for pound, this is one of the weirdest, wildest movies I have ever seen. And you know from this show that I watch a lot of insane stuff. We start out at a church in Tucson, Arizona, where a group of people are meeting up for a bus ride into Mexico, led by a disenfranchised priest, Father Ezekiel O'Sullivan. He's got a few secrets, including an affair that he had with a nun named Tessa Wildback that led to a child which is not a secret for very long because they come to join the pack on the bus trip. She's a horrible mother and the kid is just an absolute piece of garbage. Also on the trip are a young Asian woman whose father is dying and a few hippies just looking to get away for the weekend. On their way, they stop at a hotel and cross paths with a cult leader named Umtek, who really just wants to be a Wall Street stockbroker. From there, the film gets absolutely bonkers. Some of the highlights include a person getting their head whacked off, which flies out the window and gets stuck in a basketball hoop, a woman who tears her own heart out and then tears the priest's heart out and swaps them, the possessed priest then punches through someone's head, rips a person's arm off, and shoves it down their throat while the hands are still moving inside of the throat, and the whole thing culminates with a Mayan basketball game that pits tourists versus zombies, while a man who turned into a giant horned slug fights a man who turned into a dinosaur. This all happens in the second half of this movie. The first half is pretty sluggish, but I'm telling you, the second half, all hell breaks loose. You can tell the film isn't trying to be serious, and I think that helps things because the plot is absolutely bananas and the dialogue is horrendous. A highlight includes a woman who's clearly possessed and the priest is just like, it's just Tourette's, nothing to worry about. It's obviously a low-budget film. Most of the end of the film was probably filmed in one small warehouse. The walls of a rock cave are clearly made out of crumpled up paper, and a woman gets tossed into a stone wall only to have it shake like flimsy cardboard upon impact. But the special effects in this are really good. Like, really fucking legitimately great. The human-to-creature transformations and the different gore effects really work, and that scene I mentioned with the hand in the dude's neck was straight-up awesome. As was another where a guy gets his head crushed by a bus and we see an eyeball just pop out of his head. The Laughing Dead is a film that will play great with a crowd. It's got that weird late 80s batshit charm to it with some killer special effects. It stars a bunch of horror and fantasy authors in the cast, some in their only on-screen role, and I think this kind of helps with the pulpy, worn, paperback nature of the film. If you're into wacky stuff and that's so bad it's good quality, this is going to be right up your alley. Hang in there for the first 30 minutes. Like I said, it's a little bit slow, but you are going to be rewarded as the film progresses. Vinegar Syndrome once again did a bang-up job with the print, especially for a film that had never had an American video release. It also includes a feature-length commentary from the director, as well as a mini-documentary that features many of the people involved in the film. This is another perfect example of how much effort Vinegar Syndrome puts into their releases. Tracking these people down and convincing them to be on camera for this was probably no small feat. So uh, bravo to you, Vinegar Syndrome. Bravo. 
I also finally saw the final Daniel Craig 007 movie, No Time to Die. We used to be able to get into a room with the enemy. Now they're just floating in the ether. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. Oh my God, target enough people. Number of people become the weapon. Who is he? James, you don't know what this is. James Bond. Licensed to kill. In love with Madeline Swan. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. And life is all about leaving something behind. Isn't it? Come on, Bond. Where the hell are you? A bad guy hell-bent on destroying the world brings James Bond back into action. If this setup sounds familiar, it's because it's not really that different from the lot of 007 films, or spy films in general. Bond has left MI6, but is recruited by his old pal, CIA's Felix Leiter, to help bring in a kidnapped scientist who's in possession of a deadly weapon. In the wrong hands, it could destroy the world. Along the way, we get some gadgets, beautiful women, riveting locales, and a bunch of unnecessary plot contrivances. Let's start with the good. This installment is directed by Kerry Fukunaga, and right off the bat, you can tell. This film is gorgeous. Shots are so well composited, and the film is just chock full of stunning imagery. It's like every set piece had frames that you could mat and use as wall dressing. The good guys are all fantastic in their roles. Daniel Craig is my favorite Bond, and his swan song in the role was really good. He's grizzled, obviously carrying the last 15 years as the character as baggage as he delivers every line. Another surprise standout here is Anna de Armas, who is only in the film for like five minutes, and it's, that's one of the disappointing things about this movie, because she was awesome, and seeing her hand-to-hand -hand combat was kind of dazzling. Can we get a, a CIA spin-off film, perhaps, with this character? Uh, speaking of the action, it's shot well, and although it suffers from the same NPC bad guy barrage who couldn't shoot the water with a machine gun from the inside of a fucking canoe, it's still thrilling. We get a few well-shot car chases, a few gun battles, and teases of hand-to-hand -hand combat. One motorcycle jump in the middle of Italy had me hold my breath for a second because it was so clean. It's about as brutal as a film can be with a PG-13 rating, but there's, uh, there's no blood, definitely bloodless, and the hand-to-hand -hand combat I thought was pretty lacking in this one. Aside from the story, the biggest weak link here are the villains. The outlandishly miscast Rami Malek plays Lucifer Safin, your typical weirdo Bond villain with an island lair and nefarious plans. It's almost like they wanted to be Dr. No, but changed their mind at the last minute. His connection to the whole thing is that he did something pretty bad 20 plus years ago that I won't spoil, but Remy Malek always looks like he's about 25 years old, so it feels like they put this old person makeup on him with a streak of gray in his hair, but I never bought it. He mumbles his mysterious dialogue in a vague European dialect the entire time, but doesn't really say anything interesting. He just wants to destroy the world, blah, blah, blah. He never felt like a credible threat to Bond, and never felt like someone who anyone would want to fight for. I also don't understand how he got all of his money, but maybe I just missed that. Dolly Ben Salah plays Primo, aka Cyclops, Safin's one-eyed assassin right-hand man, and uh, he seemed like a kind of a cool villain, but I was disappointed in how he and Bond's eventual one-on-one -on -one fight ends up. It was abnormally short and ended pretty predictably. 
And uh, one other comment at almost three hours long, no time to die is way too long. The final outing for Daniel Craig feels like well-worn territory, and if you look at all five films as a collective, it's tough to buy the final romance. It still feels strange that Bond has more charisma with someone who died like 10 years ago, but something about the film still got to me. I felt genuine emotion as the film came to a close and the final moments of the movie go to some pretty surprising lengths with the James Bond character. Overall, I liked No Time to Die more than I disliked it, and although it's not perfect, I think it's still worth checking out. In terms of Craig's 007 run, my uh, five list, because there are five movies, I'd rank them Casino Royale at number one by far. I think that's one of the best action movies of the last 20 years. Skyfall comes, uh, comes in second. No Time to Die, this movie here would be in third. Quantum of Solace at number four. And far, far down the list, at the bottom, is the absolutely reprehensible Spectre. One thing I should have mentioned about 007 is that his looks are on point. The wardrobe in that movie is fantastic. And uh, it reminds me, if you have a kid at some point, they're gonna be a teenager, and that teenager is gonna wanna go to school in style. And uh, just like James Bond, that can be tough on the wallet. The clothes I saved from my middle school years to eventually hand down to my kid, WWF t-shirts, starter jackets, and Jinko jeans aren't in anymore, and the latest trends are probably pretty expensive. And that's where today's sponsor, Rent-A-Swag, comes in. Now parents can just rent the dopest shirts, the swankiest jackets, the slickest cardigans, the flashiest fedoras, the hottest ties, the snazziest canes, and more at a fraction of the cost of an all-new wardrobe. Head to Rent-A-Swag's Pawnee, Indiana location today and tell Tom that the Force 5 podcast sent you for a free ascot with any frock coat rental. Rent-A-Swag. Dress right. Feel right. Speaking of right, let's talk writing with Phil Iscove. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Today I'm joined by Phil Iscove. He created and co-wrote the television show Sleepy Hollow and also wrote for the Grey's Anatomy spinoff Station 19. He currently hosts or co-hosts the Amazing Shows podcast like it's 1999 and its sister show podcast like it's 1989. Phil Iscove, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, man. Thanks for coming. Uh, bef before we get started, before we get into our movies, let's talk about podcasts like it's 1999. Uh, <laughs> why would people want to check out a podcast about the films and sometimes pop culture stuff going on in 1999? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Hopefully one that we answer on our, <laughs> on our podcast. Uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, it really came down to, you know, Kenny and I uh, are really good friends and, you know, we were we were hanging out a ton getting lunches and what have you and and getting kind of hooked on our own uh you know movie podcasts and the like most specifically uh blank check which we are very big fans of and we were like well we should do a podcast what should we do it about and we just started brainstorming ideas and talking about the movies of 1999 and it, it's just it's a it's a fantastic year it's you know notoriously one of the best years for film you know eyes wide shut the matrix talent to mr ripley election fight club being john malkovich the list goes on and on and so we decided that we wanted to do that and and as things progressed we we you know started to accumulate this really amazing group of guests you know we have people like liz hannah and you know uh, griffin and david from blank check and all sorts of people that's just it's it just turned into its own thing. And we do, you know, we also do some, uh, I do some TV mini series, which we've done 
Freaks and Geeks, Felicity, Sex and the City, West Wing, and covering all of the 1999 episodes of, of those shows as well. So it's just been a blast to do. I noticed in your great films of 1999, you didn't mention Smart House. You know, I didn't. <laughs> uh, shockingly, I didn't. We had an amazing guest. Emma Stefanski came on for, for Smart House. Um, you know, that movie is just bonkers. I, I think it's also a little bit, you know, we talked a little before we hopped on mic here about, you know, generational divides, if you will. Yeah. And the, the, the Disney movie of the week thing or Disney movies or whatever the hell they're called um, are uh, very much one of those like, I wasn't a kid, so I don't get it thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm in the same camp. Uh, when that episode popped, I had no idea what that movie was. <laughs> and my wife, who is yeah. younger than me, had seen it. And uh, so we had a good discussion about that. Aside from that amazing classic, what are some of your other favorite films of all time? Just so my listeners get a sense of your taste. Oh boy. I mean, that's that's I mean, kind of sort of an impossible question. But it is. I will say that my my sort of my. I'm I'm sure you have this too, where like there are days where you wake up and you're just like, this is my favorite film, right? And then there are days where this is my favorite film. And and the two films that are, I guess, the two parts of me are E.T. and Fargo. Um, oh, okay. The, you know, the, I guess that shows the the range uh, that, that's inside me, <laughs> you know, the mother and father that wrestle inside me. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I also, I mean, listen, there are classics, movies that I grew up on that I adore. You know, when Harry met Sally and uh, Back to the Future and, um, you know, I'm a big Tim Burton fan. Uh, so, you know, we just did an episode on Sleepy Hollow, which was obviously a very important film to me. But um, ranking my Tim Burton films was really tough. You know, Batman Returns, Ed Wood, those are definitely up there for me as well. Awesome. Now, tonight we're going to be talking top five movies about writing. And obviously mm -hmm. you're a writer by trade. Was there any other inspiration for the topic tonight? It's a good question. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I when, when you reached out and sort of, you know, and, and relayed to me the the concept of the podcast, I was just like, man, like what top five would I want to talk about? And and I bounced around a lot of different things, but I wanted to kind of be as uh, uh, kind of specific, I guess, or a little yeah. bit more finite about it. Um, and this just kind of came to me as just something that I was like, people don't. Uh, necessarily talk about i mean we talked a little bit before mike about uh um uh screen drafts and their podcast which i also adore and have been on a couple times they do that thing where like they find these little you know these little nooks and crannies of genre and what have you that are really exciting to do and so i tried to kind of apply a, a similar logic to this well i love it it's a great topic and it was a tough one for me because <laughs> you know you, you can go at it very literally or you can you can go in a direction about authors. Ultimately, I yep. went at this list very literally with the requirement that the movies on mine needed to have the act of writing like as a device in the film, an important part of the film. That's interesting. Yeah, and it left off some of my favorites about authors. And I also have this, um, I guess I have this habit of leaving off some of the big hitters to pull out some deep cuts. So I'm kind of secretly hoping that you talk about the two very obvious big ones that I left off. But if you don't, I will definitely mention them in the honorable mentions. Um, how did you go about your like criteria for the list? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It <laughs> After I, I 
suggested the the topic to you i then thought about how difficult this topic was <laughs> uh and and kind of started to um how did i come at it you're asking uh, okay i sort of made it about people writing like the actual sort of the the protagonists of all of these movies are writers so now they're some are novelists, some are screenwriters, um, but the sort of the 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 lens with which the film is seen is through that of a writer. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, to you? it seems like we it does it does, and it seems like we have very similar thought processes going in. So I wonder how much overlap we I'm will sure, have. I'm sure here. we're going to have some overlap, but I'll also say this that I. I had some honorable mentions. So how does how does this work in terms of honorable honorable mentions? Do we do those at the end? Is that yeah, yeah. We'll talk about those okay, at the okay. end. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. I there are some big big honorable mentions that I imagine might be on your list that are not in my five. So we'll see. All right. I also contemplated getting kind of tricky, like some other kinds mm-hmm. of writing, like writing code. But ultimately, I was like, oh, you know, that's what? interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I don't want to. Cool. I would have been game for that. I mean, I, I was, I was pretty. I mean, I came at it as a writer. I came at yeah. it as sort of like, what are the sort of, you know, what are the five films for all intents and purposes that that I've sort of put myself inside of in some form or another if that makes sense so okay cool yeah i, I kind of went at it as like a wannabe writer so <laughs> i guess we're in the in the <laughs> sure, same sure. camp there, there you go. uh all right phil you ready to get into this list i'm ready man you know what's gonna happen you know what's happening here right now i know what's gonna happen no 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 what you just made the list All right, top five films about writing. And I'm going to start us off here with my number five. You mentioned novelists, you mentioned screenwriters, and I've got some of those on my list. But this first one is uh, a journalist who's writing for a magazine called The New Republic. This is Mm. Shattered Glass from 2003. There are 16,800 magazines in this country. But only one calls itself the in-flight magazine of Air Force One. And that's the thrill of working at the New Republic. This kid, he hacked his way into a company called Juked Micronics and posted the salary of every Juked employee on Juke's website, saying the big bad bionic boy has been here, baby. (laughs) I want a Miata. I want a trip to Disney World. It's funny. I don't know. Do you have phone numbers for all your sources on the Hack Heaven Vs? Because somebody must do some kind of follow-up story. Called all the hackers I know, asking if any had heard of a hacker by the name of Big Bad Bionic Boy. Nothing. He's made some pretty serious charges. This looks very suspicious to me. I'm increasingly beginning to believe that I've been duped. Great movie. It is a great movie. It's directed by Billy Ray, who's primarily a, a writer. Like, he wrote The Hunger Games. He wrote Captain Phillips, the most recent Terminator film. But he directed this one. This was his directorial debut. It's the story of Stephen Glass, who fell from mm-hmm. grace when it was discovered that he fabricated like half of his articles, probably more, from the New Republic magazine. It's a really interesting movie because it chronicles the beginning of this age of internet fact-checking and how journalism could evolve in the 21st century. 
Uh, obviously, with the internet the way it is now, a lot of that truth just goes out the window anyway. But at the dawn of the internet, it was really interesting to see how people started holding journalists accountable in different ways. And, um, you know, based on the kinds of films I normally watch, I'm I'm a big genre fan, and this mm-hmm. probably wouldn't seem like a movie that I'd seek out, but I love this movie. And as I rewatched it this week, it's really because of the performances, specifically those of Hayden Christensen and Peter Sarsgaard. Mm-hmm. Hayden Christensen plays the uh, the titular Stephen Glass, and he's this like super charismatic young magazine writer. He just he's always telling stories, but he's completely full of shit. And <laughs> Hayden Christensen is so terrific as this guy who's just like trying to keep his head above water as he drowns further and further into these lies that he's telling. And you can see there's a scene where Peter Sarsgaard like takes him to the site where he said he had this meeting with this hacker. And you can see Christensen, like his unease as you see his story unraveling. It's just fantastic. And then Peter Sarsgaard is also in that scene. He plays Charles Lane, the head of the magazine and a guy who's like, at first he's trying to protect his writer. He's like, there's no way this guy's making up these stories. And then he starts to smell the bullshit. And it just like, the the sweater completely unravels from there. It's got a great cast. Uh, also has Chloe Sevigny in there, Rosario mm-hmm. Dawson in an early role. Steve Zahn is fantastic as the guy who kind of like uncovers the the inconsistencies in Glass's stories. Hank Azaria is in there. Shattered Glass. It's not like one of the things like you think writers, books, and and screenplays and stuff, but. Wow, this is a, a really fun movie about a guy writing for a magazine that's just totally full of shit. And I highly recommend Shattered Glass <laughs> from 2003. Uh, sounds like you love it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's now I'm just sort of regretting the fact that I didn't cast my net wider in terms of my definition <laughs> of writing for this uh, for this podcast. I, I mean, because I'm a huge, huge fan of... Um, uh, journalistic movies um i you know all the president's men is one of my favorite films um Mm -hmm. i love spotlight and the post um paper as well um so i'm kind of kicking myself for not including at least you know one of those on this list but um not that not that i don't love the five films that i'm going to mention but i i it's funny too you know i don't know if you're watching dope sick right now which is on hulu which is also starring uh peter sarsgaard um also playing a reporter, not a reporter, sorry. Uh, um, I think he's he's working for uh, a government agency, I believe. But either way, um, long story short, um, I, uh, I love Shattered Glass. I think it's great. I think it's what's interesting about Shattered Glass, too, is, you know, the, the, the Hayden Christensen of it all is also kind of interesting, right? Which is he makes yeah. this film and he kind of has this burgeoning kind of indie cred that he's kind of built for himself as this... Uh, understandably so, as a sort of young, up-and-coming actor. Uh, and then that's all swallowed whole by Star Wars. Oh. And, it's, and it's just, everything just goes to shit for, there for him, unfortunately. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he was fantastic in this. And then, you're yeah, right, really Star good. Wars just, like, just destroyed his career altogether. Yeah. I mean, listen, who wouldn't have taken the role, obviously? And, 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 and I also think it's interesting, too, because, like, um, not to certainly not to go down a, a rabbit hole on Star Wars, but it is interesting to think about you know George Lucas or whoever 
watching that film and being like, look at this, you know, this burgeoning talent. Let's give him the most wooden dialogue and make him <laughs> act against fucking tennis balls for three years. I know. I know. Yeah. And it's weird because <laughs> like, I think episode two came out like right before this, but I don't know when shattered glass was filmed. And then yeah, three, yeah. which is again, 2005, one of the worst, it just totally it's still just interesting. I, I mean, I, I quite like uh, Hayden Christensen. I think that, you know, there could be a reclamation on him. There could be a whole new uh, gear that we don't know about as he gets older. Um, but it, it's just a it's just an interesting because that is definitely the film that, you know, if I was to tell someone like, do you actually want to believe Hayden Christensen can act, you know, watch this film? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm ready for the Hayden sance for sure. <laughs> right. It could happen. I'm down. <laughs> All right, uh, Phil, number five for you. My number five is, um, I don't want to say it's a, uh, it's not a cheat, but it's, okay. so it's before sunset. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. I can't believe you're here. Well, I live here in Paris. I wanted to talk to you for so long, you know, then now... <laughs> Me too. How long do we have? 20 minutes and 30 seconds? No, Let's we got, go. <laughs> no, we got more than that. Now they have one afternoon to find out if they belong together. I remember that night better than I do entire years. Do you look any different? I do. I'd have to see you naked. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not a cheat. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a cheat, but I I love the before movies. I adore them. Uh, it's one of my favorite trilogies, without question. Um, and and as I've gotten older, I would say that probably Sunset is my favorite of the three. Um, but I think that the reason that I picked it for this list was um, the idea of writing as sort of um, what's the best way to describe this as sort of uh, not therapy necessarily because that's not the right word for it, but Jesse sort of to give people context anyway, the first the first film is Before Sunrise came out in 1995, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's 95. Yep. 95, yeah. And yeah, and it's basically about this guy, Jesse, and this uh, played by Ethan Hawke, and this girl, Celine, played by Julie Delpy. Uh, and they meet on a train, um, and he's looking to kill 24 hours before he has to get on a plane to go back to texas um and she is killing time with him essentially in austria on her way back to i believe it's paris um and the second film takes place nine years later um where we don't know if they met back up in the intervening years we find out that they didn't and we find out that jesse um married someone had a child and wrote this book that was inspired by and is sort of about this one night that he had spent with Celine nine years previous. Um, and, and I think what's so interesting about it, or at least the reason that I wanted to explore it or talk about it on uh, as a writing document is, is that his book is a document of his love for this 24 hours or so that he spent with this, with this woman um, and the power of the written word and the idea that, that he felt it was so important to him um, that he had no choice, but to, you know, uh, cathartically put it down uh, in the written word. So I, I just think it's very, it's it's a very romantic way of looking at writing, 
Um, I would say it's probably of the, of the five films that I've talked about, it's probably the most romantic in, about writing. <laughs> um, and I, I just, uh, I felt like it was just a really good uh, way into just the notion of the, the power of the written word. It's been a long time since I've seen this one, but uh, I, it came up on uh, like, obviously I was doing my research about sure. movies with authors and it's like, wow, yeah, that, that would be a, a great one to revisit. Ultimately I didn't because like him <laughs> writing didn't happen really in the film. Yes. So I didn't like, I didn't put it on my we list. We don't see but, him do any writing in the movie. So yeah. yeah, but I wouldn't fault you for putting it on, on yours and Hawk and Delphi, Delphi are just amazing in this whole series just a really, they, they good really series are. of movies yeah yeah it's it's just it's a really special trilogy i i don't know if we're gonna get more of them um i you know just uh, ironically last night i went to see a, a screening of the power of the dog and she was there julie delphi was there and i <laughs> really wanted oh. to tell her to make a fourth <laughs> one um but uh yeah i just uh you know they, they're just really special films to me and, and i and i don't think they I don't think they pull their punches in a in a bunch of ways, you know. I, I you know, Julie is or not Julie. Celine is quite sort of, um, you know, she's 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 pretty critical of of Jesse's writing, um, yeah, and of his sort of his his i sort of idyllic way he saw the night they had together. So anyway, I really love it. That's uh what nineteen ninety or two thousand four two thousand four before sunset. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Good pick. Uh, my number four, let's see, we'll also go with an author here. And gosh, I there's there's two Stephen King-based movies that could have been on this list. And I chose... A writer of writers. <laughs> exactly. I chose <laughs> one that is a little lesser known than The Big Hitter. And this is this is going to tip you off to which one I left off my list. Sure. This one, um, I, I'm like I said, I'm a big genre fan, big George Romero fan, and in 1993 he got to make the Stephen King adaptation of The Dark Half. Thad Beaumont has a secret. I know all about it. A piece of himself he keeps hidden. You just don't want to give up George. You become attached to him. Locked away until he needs it. These behaviors could be interpreted as schizophrenia. From the light, safe in the shadows. I wrote those words and I have no recollection of doing it. But sometimes secrets take on a life of their own. Thad Beaumont thought he didn't need George Stark anymore. The American way of death. That's it. He served his purpose. Time to lay him to rest. But George is not about to go quietly. You don't realize what you like when you write those books, do you? It's like watching Jekyll turn into Hyde. (laughs) So, (laughs) this one is insane. And about as far from Before Sunset (laughs) as you can get thematically. (laughs) (laughs) That's the beauty of these lists, right? For sure. This stars Timothy Hutton as Thad Beaumont. He's an author who, he, he like makes these prestige books. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Uh, He has this line of prestige books, and he also has this line of sleazy crime novels on the side under the pseudonym George Stark. Of course, um, Stephen King had his own pseudonym of Richard Bachman, Mm -hmm. and I think that's where a lot of this came from. 
But uh, so he's writing and everything's a secret. But this blackmailer comes and threatens to expose him. And so as a gesture of like getting rid of the pseudonym, he retires the name and buries the name with like a real tombstone and all like as (laughs) as symbolic as it gets. Totally normal thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, (laughs) we'll see that uh, that old Thad has a dark side to him anyway. Um, (laughs) But yeah, long story short, the pseudonym comes out of the grave and starts to murder people associated with the books in order to frame Thad Beaumont for these murders, leading to a final showdown between the two that is literally about writing as Stark holds people close to Beaumont hostage with the order of making him write a novel in which Stark <laughs> lives in the real world. It is, um, it's crazy. Like, as a premise, this is nuts. But I do think that this is an underrated Stephen King adaptation. And as I watched it, I had the guys from the King cast on earlier in the year, oh, yeah. and we Very we cool. talked to him. Yeah, they were great. We talked under top five underrated Stephen King adaptations, and mm-hmm. this didn't make any of our lists. And now that I watch it, I kind of regret not having it on my list because <laughs> it's a really fun movie. And Timothy Hutton is, he's not an actor that I would typically say like, oh, that's a great actor, but... Man, he is great as both of these characters. And as Beaumont, you see he's this family man, but he's kind of got a menace hiding under the surface that you see like poke through here and there. And then Mm -hmm. when he gets into the character of George Stark, he's just like a straight up caricature. He is um, he's chewing scenery. He looks like Andrew Dice Clay almost. (laughs) Uh, He's like spouting one liners after he kills people and I was watching some of the, like, I was listening to some of the commentary stuff on the Blu-ray, and Romero gives a commentary where he says that um, Hutton went super method on set, which made it really tough for him to direct him, and he really disliked Timothy Hutton because of this. Uh, If you watch this movie, you're like, how the hell would somebody direct George Stark (laughs) on set? Um, But for some reason, it works. The score by Christopher Young is really haunting and beautiful. That's the last thing I'll say about my love for the dark half. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely not the best Stephen King adaptation for movies about writers. But I thought it was a worthy one to have on this list just because the it's like directly um, it's directly channeling or uh, channeling the the power of writing in its climax, and I thought that was pretty cool. You know, it's it's funny. This you're two for two in the sense of of making me question my list, and and by that I mean, <laughs> um, you know, Stephen King is, you know, has notoriously written um, not just fictionally but nonfiction about the writing process. His book on writing is a is an unbelievable book. If you're a writer, if you want to be writing, I highly recommend reading it. I'm not a big Stephen King person because I'm a big baby. I didn't really read many <laughs> of his books when I was a kid, although a lot of my friends did. Um, and I, I'd be lying if I said I've seen a lot of his films. I've seen a handful of them, um, and, and I am dipping my toes more and more into uh, you know what you would, I guess, consider horror films um, as I've gotten older. But um, I do vividly remember, and I looked this up while you were talking, the poster for The Dark Half, which I don't know if you've looked at it relatively recently. Oh, yeah, it's it a great a, poster. It's, it's kind of a great poster. It's like, <laughs> it's sort of this, 
this kind of I don't know negative image, if you will, of Timothy Hutton uh, in 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 between the branches of a tree in the darkness with like birds and um, and the tagline is uh, there are very good reasons to be afraid of the dark. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting, and and you certainly have made me want to watch it. Um, it also, as you were talking, made me think of there's a book that just came out called The Plot, which has a somewhat similar concept of. Um, uh, sort of someone assuming someone basically uh someone writes a book then they die and someone else takes credit for the book and is then haunted by the person who wrote the book if you will so hmm. there's 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 sort of that but um it's interesting because you know Stephen King's movies about writers obviously you know the big one is misery um yeah and which spoiler it's not on my list uh, it's in my honorable <laughs> okay. mentions um, i i think i mean i i like misery just fine but i do think that you know to put it next to um before sunset and and funnily enough sandwiching <laughs> between what my next pick is is funny because i do think that stephen king is one of those authors that has a, a tremendous amount of respect obviously for 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 writers, right? And for writing, he is one, obviously. Um, but also sees it as this somewhat demonic thing, right? That like consumes yeah. you. Um, and and that it's this, you know, uh, even just looking at Stephen King's actual life and what he went through with, with you know, painkillers and, and trying to write his way through that. And he's just... Um, maybe more so than any writer I can think of, there's such a visceral component to writing for him. Um, it is, it is kind of the, the monster on your, on your shoulder. That's like demanding you write. Uh, it's just interesting. I agree. And those birds on the poster, they are sparrows, which, uh, make their way into the climax of the film in like the most bonkers way you'd ever imagine the uh, I will sure. say if you're not a horror fan this this one doesn't really come off as scary I think they tried to make it scary but it's not that scary and it's also not as gory as a lot of Romero stuff so I think this if you're trying to get into a little bit of Stephen King mm -hmm. this is probably a, a pretty decent starting point if you can like handle all the insanity of just the the plot itself yeah i mean i i i haven't seen it so i can't i can't I'm, I'm excited to watch it though um my number four is greta gerwig's little women i'm working on a novel it is a story of my life and my sisters make it short and spicy and if the main character is a girl make sure she's married by the end ow joe I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe? To be a famous writer. Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says it. My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. Which you can now see why is sort of funny to go from Stephen King to this. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I rewatched um, Greta Gerwig's Little Women relatively recently. I, I, it, was, it was my number two favorite film of 2019. I absolutely adore it. Um, it was second only to Parasite, which, you know, is uh, also a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, 
I, uh, I this last rewatch of Little Women um, really kind of hit home for me um, the the bookends of the film, um, which is that it for those who haven't seen it, it's obviously an adaptation of um, uh, oh my god Alcott's book, um, but it is done. Um, sort of through a postmodern lens of, of this fractured narrative where you sort of are jumping around in Joe March's life. And then it sort of almost breaks into a fork at the end of the film that, that, that almost gives the audience um, a choose your own adventure, if you will, um, that allows them to, if you want the, 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 overly romantic ending that some might argue Alcott was forced into based on the time that she wrote the book, uh, you can have that ending. And then if you want to choose the version where, um, you know, she doesn't run off with the man and, and, and she, you know, makes a, builds a school and whatever, you can have that, that version too. Um, but I'll just say that the bookends of the film are, uh, Joe pitching essentially an editor, um, a short story or, or gives him a short story of hers uh, that he ultimately buys. And then the end of the movie um, is obviously, you know, her writing what is essentially little women, which is sort of a metatextual commentary on the book and all of that. But the very last montage of the film is um, her literal book being made. And you're watching the book being bound while it intersperses with sort of catching up on the various sisters and where they are in their lives. And the very last image of the movie is Joe holding on to the book. And to me, that's the movie. Like the movie is Joe's love of writing and, and Joe's passion towards writing. I would, I would argue that the most, one of the most visceral moments of the entire movie is when Amy burns her book. It's like a murder. Um, <laughs> it's, it's that to me is really in sort of the DNA, at least of this adaptation um, and, and seeing the, the pride I mean, it gives me goosebumps just to to, to say it, to, to watch Joe's face as her book is being bound and then holding it in her arms. I mean, I, I can't imagine more love for a writer and their material than that. You know, I'm ashamed to say that I have not seen <laughs> this film and I need to. I need to. I mean, it was nominated for like seven oscars six oscars something like that it's nominated for a lot of oscars i mean it's it first of all you're not alone you know i i think that it is interesting that it feels like every generation has their adaptation of little women we've seen yep. many of them i think this is the fifth if i'm not mistaken or fourth um i have not seen all of them the only ones that i've seen are greta's which was the first one i had ever seen and then obviously i watched the winona Ryder one for my podcast on, uh, on <laughs> yep. screen drafts with uh with dana schwartz um you know it, it's i understand why it is such a powerful you know totem if you will um obviously especially for for young women but but for writers as well um you know i i under i, I actually went to see little women um they did a guild screening of it back in in 2019 and and greta gerwig was there to do a q a afterwards and just hearing her talk about how much of a sort of guiding light this book has been for her as obviously as a female writer um it's just a very powerful um it's a very powerful material well this is going to be another tough transition from <laughs> yeah, what, the, what's your number four <laughs> from the prestige of of 2019's little women which was mm -hmm. nominated for six oscars to 
<laughs> straight back to the gutter for my <laughs> number three here with a film that I can, I, I'm, I'm confident that you as, as a, somebody who is not really into horror films probably has <laughs> never heard of this film. Uh, it was made in, well, there's varying accounts, maybe 79, 80, finally okay. released in the United States in 1984. Okay. This is a movie called Deadline. I don't know Deadline. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sell you on it here, but I will definitely describe it. Okay. Uh, this one's directed by Mario Azapardi. It's a um, connects. It's a uh, how do you say this word? Canucksploitation flick. There we go. Okay. About an author named Stephen Lessie who is so focused on writing the ultimate horror movie script that he doesn't realize that his family life is falling apart around him. Okay. This is part crazy, visually arresting horror film and part family drama. So okay. we see like Lessie trying to pound out this script. He's got producers on his back and he's running through scenarios in his head and his kids coming up asking him questions. He's kind of shooing the kid away. And then we smash cut to inside of Lassie's head as he comes up with more and more elaborate ways to kill characters. And um, it's really jarring when you go from these family drama scenes to a literal bloodbath of a woman in a shower just being covered with red blood or carnivorous nuns. <laughs> or, I mean, in my favorite one. And look, if this doesn't sell you on deadline, I don't know what will. Have you ever heard of the theory called the Brown Note? Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to explain this to you real quick. Uh, okay. The the brown note is is a theory that a band or a person could play a note that would make you shit your pants. Okay. Okay. A literal brown note? Okay. Yes, a literal brown note. And there is a scene in this film where a band plays the brown note and people literally shit themselves to death. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> <laughs> this is where we've come from, Little Women. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a hard left turn. I mean, I, I you know, <laughs> it does speak to the power of the written word, I guess, to some degree. I I no, I I don't know if I'll be watching Deadline anytime soon, I, but uh, <laughs> it sounds powerful. Well, powerful is one way to put it. I mean, thematically, <laughs> it it really does have some. Uh, it it has some really it has some things that speak to writers so uh it's it's about the stress of the deadline which i know you can relate to other people who write things can relate to as yes. the yes. deadline is looming right uh it also it's it's about having to write things that the writer feels are beneath him which if you're a writer for hire sometimes you have to do things like that and it goes into that. It also lightly explores the violent media versus real life motif as critics of the screenwriters say that his blood and gore soaked books because he, he writes books that are then adapted into movies. And they're like saying that they're warping the minds of his readers and that he's responsible for violence. And he, as a writer, wants to focus on something more weighty and more serious. But at the same time, he's got publishers who are pressuring him to come out with like a great horror novel because his books sell. So it's got a lot of relatable stuff, although yeah, the film sounds, is. It, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's schlocky, but it's got a lot of good themes. It's also got really good performances by Stephen Young and Sharon Masters. It's it's not perfect. It's all over it the place, cool. which I think is. Yeah, it is. It's a fun movie. It's all over the place, which I think is by design. But. 
like the real knock I think for newcomers is probably going to be the fact that the screenwriter himself is very unlikable, very mean-spirited sure. character, but as a writer, I think you'll find some things intriguing in here and uh it looks really good. Vinegar Syndrome is a boutique Blu-ray label and they put this out with a 2K scan from a, a producer's 35 millimeter print. It looks really oh, wow. really good even though there's some like visible damage on the print that they had, but yeah, Deadline, made in 1980. On IMDb, I think it's going to say 80, but it was released here in 1984 and uh, definitely explores some themes uh, about writing. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it sounds like it definitely does. I um, my, my number three is probably, I don't know if it's the darkest of, of these films, but it probably is. Um, so my number three is Sunset Boulevard. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond. I was on, actually, I was on another podcast to talk about Sunset Boulevard. Um, the um, uh, You're Missing Out podcast, which has been doing the the sort of the, the various films that have been put into the... Um, uh, Oh my God, what's it called? When when the historical archives, if you will, I don't know what the proper oh, yeah, yeah. nomenclature is, but um, uh, or definition that is. But um, so I, I've, I've talked about this a little bit on Mike before, but I, I will say that this film, to me anyway, um, is sort of the the most kind of crystallized dark side of writing in Hollywood, I guess, to some degree. Um, I, I think that it it's it's also about um, you know what you're willing to do to keep writing um and and what sort of um you know where the line in the sand is for you um and uh you know obviously i don't know what people know about the the, the plot of sunset boulevard but it essentially revolves around a writer who um who essentially narrates the entire film from the great beyond as we see him dead in uh having been shot in a pool at the top of the movie and then it rewinds to how we sort of got there as he gets himself kind of pulled into the clutches of this old um actress who sort of is beyond is sort of on the the other side of her career um and kind of the 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 things he's willing to do to sell himself out for all intents and purposes in order to stay um i don't want to say relevant necessarily but at least to to, to continue writing right it's it's a very sort of i don't think tongue-in-cheek's not the right word but there is very kind of there is a little bit of a wink in it to some degree there's a very dark kind of dark humor to it um you know especially just thinking about you know the the infamous end of the movie is uh you know Norma Desmond is is about to be arrested for having you know killed um uh oh my god why am i drawing a blank on the character's name anyway uh the 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 main writer 
she kills him. He's laying in the pool and they convince her that the cameras that are there are, you know, movie cameras. And she's like deluding herself into thinking that as she's about to be arrested, that it's the, that it's the beginning of a, of a movie that she's shooting. I mean, it's all just about the delusions of what you convince yourself is, is possible um, in this, uh, this sort of upside down industry that I've for whatever reason decided to work in. Yeah, that's a great pick too. I wow, it's been a long time since I've seen Sunset Boulevard, but it felt like the ending almost turned into a bit of a horror movie. It's not oh, like a typical yeah. noir story. It's also shot gothically too. Like the whole thing is in this like gothic black and white. It's all shadows and it's beautiful. Yeah, and that's the there's a lot of shots of the old Paramount set, I think, which is mm-hmm. really cool mm-hmm. to see if you're into movies. It's um it's cool to to see the old industry. Definitely the best. If you have to go to a lot, uh, you know, a, a studio lot in this town, that's the one to go to. And just with the old gates and it's it's just it's the best. What's your three? So that was Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Well, this will be my number two here. And oh, yeah, two, finally, sorry. finally, we're getting into uh, some <laughs> some movies that I can actually say are really, really great. And it's funny, <laughs> you know, we've been through a couple picks now and we don't have any overlap. We don't, which I'm a little surprised at. I don't know. Yeah. I'd be surprised if one of these two doesn't overlap. But Yeah. And I'm thinking, I I think that number one is probably going to be the one where we overlap for me anyway. Uh, number two, based on the description that you gave earlier on one of my earlier picks, I don't know that you're going to have number two on your list, which is okay. cool because um, it'll give us another film to talk about here. Sure. This is, again, another... Uh, it's a person writing a magazine article for the Rolling Stone. It is from 2000's Almost Famous. Hello. This is the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. This is William Miller. Yes, it is. I think you should be writing for us. From Cameron Crowe, writer-director of Jerry Maguire. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock stars. Just make us look cool. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. Don't take drugs! They're going to fly you places for free. It's Bowie! You're going to meet girls. We are not groupies. We don't have intercourse with these guys. Just blowjobs, and that's it. Amen! On the road with the band. Your mom talks! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. Spirits run high. There's acid in the beer that's in the red cups. How do you know when it's kicked in? I am a golden god! One of my favorite movies, but not on my list. Fantastic movie, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. It's about this high school kid in the early 1970s, and he is given a chance to write a story for Rolling Stone magazine about this up-and-coming rock band called Stillwater, and he goes with them on their concert tour and attempts to publish the story. It's a semi-autobiographical account by uh, Cameron Crowe, who uses Stillwater as kind of like this amalgamation of bands that he used to cover, like the Allman Brothers, uh, Leonard Skinner, Led Zeppelin, the Eagles, I think, were even in there as he wrote for Rolling Stone in the 70s. And uh, it's a really cool tug of war between the two sides of William Miller's writing. Like, does he write something that's truthful and real, or does he, as they say, does he stay cool? And he hangs around with this band and goes on tour with them. And everybody says that they're real. But, of course, this is like the 70s rock bands. Everybody's got this facade put up. And it's not until later on in the tour they're put in a situation where they think they might die that they actually show who they really are. 
One of the strongest parts of Almost Famous is the cast. Now, Patrick Fugit plays, he's he's pretty commendable, I think, as the mm-hmm. teenage version of William Miller. But I honestly, I think he's the, the weakest link in this movie. Uh, when I start listening off these people, like Francis McDormand plays his mother. She's fantastic, as always. Kate Hudson in her best role, who is simply electric as like the the main groupie. Billy Crudup as the lead singer Russell is so good. Jason Lee, who I have a soft spot for. Zooey Deschanel, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rain Wilson. Just so many really great actors in here. Like blink and you'll miss them roles for people like Mitch Hedberg and Nick Swardson. It is fantastically written. The music is really good. The soundtrack even the songs that didn't make the official soundtrack, one of the best soundtracks ever put to film. But the scene that I recently talked about with top five diegetic songs with Tiny Dancer on the tour bus is just amazing. You got to watch the film if you want to see how William's piece was received. But the writing aspect of this film has a wonderful payoff. And I really wish we could see this side of Cameron Crowe again because he's written two of my favorite films of all time with this one and Fast Times Ridgemont High mm-hmm. but then somehow wrote We Bought a Zoo and Aloha so I really wish we would see well, more introspective did, it did seem like he tried to go back into those waters a little bit with roadies and uh, to, to, to not much fanfare but I you know Almost Famous is one of my favorite films. I, I tweeted about it the other day because someone was, you know, one of those, you know, prompt tweets about like, tell me your most comfort, one of your biggest comfort movies. I mean, it, it is, mm-hmm. it's one of the most comfortable movies I know. I, I put it on whenever I'm just, you know, feeling down. Um, I mean, truthfully, it, it's like Penny Lane says in the film. She's like, you know, don't take it too seriously. And when you get sad, just go to the record store and hang out with your friends. Um, there, there's something about that idea of the power of music and the power of, of, you know, obviously writing. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier about the, you know, the, the struggle that William deals with is, you know, uh, be cool or be uncool. You know, does he take Philip Seymour Hoffman's advice and be, uh, <laughs> be honest and unmerciful? Um, <laughs> or does he, you know, they're his friends now. Right. Um, and and it's it's one of my favorite scenes ever is the scene when he calls up Philip Seymour Hoffman when he's trying to write the article, and it's the middle of the night, and you know he's like, oh no, you became friends with them, like you you can't you know what I mean? That's the booze that they sell you, as he said, um, yeah. you know, and and he's like, I'm glad you were home. He's like, of course I'm home. I'm uncool. The only true currency in this world is the time you spend with people that are uncool, and and I think that that is you know that's. That's the movie. That's the essence of the movie for me anyway. Um, and yeah, it's, it's it's one of the best movies about writing it for no other reason than the movie's just littered with tons of little scraps of pieces of paper that, that William Miller's been writing down things, trying mm-hmm. to, to, to track all of this chaos that's going on around him um, in the hopes that, you know, that he'll be able to, to write this article. I mean, when he's trying to write the article, it's one of my favorite moments in the film as well. He's, he's got all these Polaroids and, and, and things that he's... <laughs> that he's stolen uh, from all the various <laughs> hotels and places and venues that he's been to. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's the goods right there. You know, that's the stuff that that's what, you know, that's what fuels your writing. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the Penny Lane quote about hanging out at the record store, because that's literally what I would do, but switch record store for video store. And that's now why we have this podcast. And that's why I've seen movies like deadline On to your number two. 
my number two is also from the year 2000. Um, it is Curtis Hansen's Wonder Boys. Sarah, there's something I gotta tell you. Well, that's funny. I need to talk to you, too. You first. This morning. I'm pregnant. Hello? The nation's top critics agree. Wonder Boys is a comic dazzler. I just got my hood jumped on. With a pitch-perfect cast. Does that sound like anyone we know? Michael Douglas stars in one of his best and most surprising performances. How's the book? Don't touch it. Toby Maguire is impressively subtle. He now must be recognized as the outstanding 20-something actor. Where exactly are we going? See my wife? The one that left you? Francis McDormand is glorious. What's he doing here? I'm sort of helping him through some issues. Isn't he lucky? Oh, okay. I have not seen this one yet. Um, I highly, highly, highly recommend you watch this film uh, and and that all your listeners should watch it as well. Um, it's one of my favorite movies ever. Um, it, it's a movie that I remember seeing back in 2000 in the theater um, and liking, um, but I don't, but it, but I'm not sure that it completely blew me away. And then slowly but surely, it's just, it's, it's now it's in my veins. Like now I, I, I watch it all the time. Um, you know, Curtis Hansen comes off of LA Confidential, um, which obviously wins him uh, the Academy Award for Adaptation and, a, you know, obviously an unbelievable film. And he uses that blank check to adapt. Uh, he doesn't adapt, but to direct the adaptation, uh, Steve Close adaptation of Michael Chabin's novel, Wonder Boys, uh, which revolves around um, Grady, uh, who's played by Michael Douglas, who is this uh, English professor uh, teaching at this uh, school in Pittsburgh. Um, and it's it's sort of about this, you know, kind of this crazy 48 hours um, and sort of the, the, the silly adventures that they get on uh, within this this sort of college town um, and talk about a stack cast. And we talked about Almost Famous, but, you know, Francis McDormand's also in in uh, in Wonder Boys, uh, Robert Denny Jr., uh, Katie Holmes. Toby Maguire. Uh, it's it's a it's just a a truly phenomenal film that I actually another movie that I have spoken about on another podcast, uh, someone else's movie. I did an episode of that uh, Norm Wilner's podcast where I talked about Wonder Boys. Um, it just it's it's like a, a warm, cozy blanket in front of a fire of a movie. It's just autumnal and lovely. And it's all about an author who has written a book um, and doesn't know how to follow it up. Um, and he's just writing and writing and writing. And the book has grown in size. It's thousands of pages long and he has no <laughs> idea how to finish it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's Michael Douglas with, with a pair of glasses wearing a weird, um robe behind a typewriter and it's just lovely and i i I adore it okay wonder boys i gotta seek it out now i guess that's more homework for me here i have no doubt that it's streaming on a bunch of places um at the moment but yeah i mean i i think that just not to belabor the point but i'll just say that um it it's one of those movies that feels like a book similar i guess to some degree um Little Women, which I talked about earlier, but this movie just, you, you just feel like when you're watching it that you can smell the ink off the typewriter. Um, it just, it, it, it feels like writing. All right, we're at my number one here, and I'm kind of hoping you don't have my same number one, because <laughs> if you do, we then we're we leaving might. a huge one off. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so my number one here is 2002's Adaptation. It is. It is my number one as well. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I, I was wondering... Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm going to be a screenwriter like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Susan, we would really like to option this. You want to make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. Don LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. Okay, so we can kind of both jump in here after I talk mm-hmm. about what it is uh, this is directed by spike jones it's a semi-autobiographical account of charlie kaufman's struggles to adapt susan orlean's book the orchid thief into a screenplay while suffering from writer's block it's got uh, elements adapted from the book plus fictitious elements including a fake twin brother named donald and uh, a romance between orlean and an orchid hunter named john laroche this was nominated for four Academy Awards. It is a wonderful celebration of overcoming writer's block. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have writer's block, just write about the writer's block and come <laughs> at things in a completely original way. And, I mean, look, th- there was balls to turn this <laughs> screenplay in. Like, you are essentially destroying the actual a- the actual author in the process of making this movie. Uh, it's like... Yeah. I'm sure you have a similar a similar feeling about this. Well, you know, it's funny. I, this movie is, it's really fascinating to me. I, I So I actually saw this film weirdly, and I, I honestly couldn't tell you why this happened. And I, I don't mean this to sound derogatory about the film school that I went to, but I went to film school at uh, Ryerson, which is a, a film school in, in Toronto. And for reasons, again, that escaped me, Spike Jones and Nicolas Cage showed up at my film school and screened this movie and did a Q and a afterwards. Um, oh, so cool. It, 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 it was, um, <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, yes, it was cool. Um, but also if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was not a locked print yet. So I think they were actually, it's possible that Spike Jones was just going around to film schools, showing it to film students, hoping that he could get some feedback that would be helpful to him. <laughs> um, which by the way, like great idea. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it definitely felt like, you know, they were trying to kind of, you know, get feedback and hear what, what, students had to say um spike was much more interested in hearing feedback than nicholas cage was um <laughs> nicholas cage just showed up in like a, a crazy leather jacket and just looked nonplussed but Aww. um i mean he was still nicholas cage like it was fucking cool but um but that was my first uh association with the film obviously and as a film student you know 2002 i'm 22 years old i'm in my second or third year of of film school and i've just watched this movie that's basically like don't do this <laughs> right like yeah. don't, 
<laughs> the whole movie is just a condemnation of Hollywood and writing and why do you want to do this to yourself and like just run. Um, so it was kind of a weird thing to kind of process at the time. And then subsequently, you know, I obviously I moved out to Los Angeles and and I'm thankfully I have a career as a working writer, but I started my my career working at UTA, um, which uh, at the time represented Charlie Kaufman um, and might still not sure. Um, but I remember um, his agent in the movie is modeled after his actual agent. So there was like that whole weird, like it's just, it's, it's like the definition of metatextuality, this movie. It's, it's just, it's brilliant. It also has some really interesting themes about jealousy when it comes to screenwriters yeah. too as Charlie's brother Donald just like decides <laughs> to get into screenwriting, goes to one seminar about it, which he's totally advised not to do, and then almost immediately sells a screenplay for a million bucks. Yep. And I know that you've probably had this thought, as <laughs> I have as well, when you like sure. I've tossed the script on the blacklist and it's like, uh, nope, we're not we're not going with this today. And then you see something by like Skip Woods getting produced again and it's like <laughs> Are we like yeah. seriously? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing, it, it, that's what's so brilliant about the movie is that even if it is sort of skewering, um, the, the notions of being a quote unquote successful screenwriter, um, it's also embracing them and, and, and loving them. Like it, it's kind of a love letter to it as well in a weird way. I mean, I, I think that part of the reason that I think I love, um, the movies that's that Charlie Kaufman has done with Spike Jones the most is because and, and I would put Eternal Sunshine in that even though I know Spike Jones didn't direct it but like those three films being John Malkovich adaptation and, and Eternal Sunshine those three films find a way to take this kind of I don't want to say nihilistic but certainly this dark perspective that Charlie has about writing and find the beauty in it and find mm -hmm. the humanity in it and the stuff that that charlie does on his own is just so dark it's very very hard for me to watch some of those films so i i think that that there's a balance that's found um in the films that that he's only written and not directed that i think um is really beautiful and i think adaptation which is kind of i mean he says it in the movie but like i i want to make a movie about how flowers are beautiful and then his agent's <laughs> like are they? <laughs> yeah, Which, that's a great I mean, point. It's, it's, you know, and then, you know, you've got Brian Cox playing, um, oh my God, uh, Robert McKee, which is incredible. Yeah. That whole thing is just amazing. And then you have one of my favorite moments in the film is when he reads Donald's script and Donald has the, the cop and the killer as the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and and Charlie says, how are you going to do that? And he says, trick photography. <laughs> like, that's, I don't know. It's it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. And, and it's a movie about movies and movie making that isn't, you know, patronizing to its audience and understands, you know, how hard it is to make a piece of art. Yeah, it's also, if you're only used to the insane Nicolas Cage performances, this has two of my favorite <laughs> yeah. Nicolas Cage yeah, performances. Yeah. Double they're your like nuanced. Joy. Yeah, they're, they're like subtle. You know, it's a different Nicolas Cage than you might be used to. Well, hey, look, fantastic. We both had the same number one. Unfortunately, that left a couple of films off. Indeed. Uh, what were some of those honorable mentions that you had that didn't make the list? 
So the biggest one and the one that I imagine I'll get yelled at the most about uh, if and when this posts, it will post, but when it goes up on Twitter or whatever, you know, Barton Fink was my number six. Um, yep. You know, I, I, I am not the biggest Barton Fink fan. Um, I love it, but I also, it's just not, I'm not even sure it would even be in my, it would be in my, certainly in probably my top maybe top 10 Coen brothers movies, but it's, it's a side of them that for whatever reason, just doesn't totally click for me. Um, and I know it does for a lot of people and it is, it is the quintessential movie about writing for so many people. So I felt bad leaving it off, but I also would have felt like a poser if I did put it on. Yeah. I was right there with you on that. It's not <laughs> my favorite Coen brothers movie and it's a movie that they wrote while they had writer's block writing Miller's, Miller's Crossing, Crossing yeah. which I like way more. Uh, so that's why it didn't make my list too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's not to say that I don't like the film or that I don't see the brilliance of Barton Fink because I obviously do. Um, but I also feel like unlike something like adaptation, they're kind of like the, the yin and yang to each other. Cause I feel like Barton Fink is really about like being trapped inside your head and how the fuck do I get out of this? And, and, obviously what the Coens were dealing with while writing Miller's crossing and, and that, that it's palpable and it's, it's a hard watch. And I know that some people really love that about it. And for me, it just makes it tough. Yeah. There are a couple others that I wanted to, to mention in my honorable mentions. Obviously misery was a movie that we both talked about. I, I mean, misery is great, but mm -hmm. I, it's not, not one that I watch a ton. Um, Shakespeare in love is a, a lovely movie um, and a movie that I, that I do really appreciate and enjoy. But again, I'm not sure that it would be in, in my top five. Um, and then the only other one that I wanted to mention um, is Young Adult. Um, a great, great movie, uh, an underseen movie um, from, I want to say, 2010, 2011. Not sure. Maybe 2009. Yeah. Hard yeah. to say. Um, but uh, starring um, Charlize Theron and Patton Oswalt written by Diablo Cody, directed by Jason Reitman, and just a really acerbic, cutting, brutal movie about a brutal person um, <laughs> that is just, I find just hysterical and filled with heart. And um, yeah, I just, I just, I think it's a, I think it's a, that was like really, I had a tough time not putting that in my five. It's interesting. I didn't even think about that one when I was compiling my <laughs> list. So I'm glad you that go. you mentioned it. Because, yeah, now I'm thinking about it. Like, yep, that could have been my on my list for sure. Did you have some? Yeah, yeah. From the ones that you haven't mentioned yet, uh, Orange County is a really mm. funny Jack Black, Colin Hanks movie about a kid who wants to become a writer. Um, so that one missed my list because it didn't have much to do with the actual uh, action of writing. Seven Psychopaths though. is sure. a, a really fun movie about a screenwriter. The Nesting from, 19, I think, 1981 a horror movie about a haunted house, um, Tenebra from 1982. If I was going to include authors and like <laughs> books that they had written, Tenebra would have been on there. Um, the other one, another one that my wife brought up, which I thought was really interesting is the breakfast club, which is technically about them writing an essay on why they're in detention. <laughs> sure. Sure. I like <laughs> so that. I think that, yeah, I think that would have counted. Um, so those are the ones that I had on my list. Obviously, the big ones that I left off, the big two that I alluded to, didn't make either one of our lists, Misery and Barton Fink. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the only other one that I think is worth mentioning is The Shining. Um, oh, sure. 
you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of, first and foremost, I just didn't want to go with two obvious movies to some degree, although some might argue that maybe I did in the end anyway, but you know, The Shining, yeah, it's about a guy who's losing his mind because he can't, because he can't fucking <laughs> find a place to write. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great. And again, like it comes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, it is a, a common and I don't say this derisively, but it's a common thing for, for Stephen King to go to that well um, when it comes to, you know, crawling inside his own head. So I, I appreciate that about him. I do, too. Phil Iscove, great list. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find more of your work? Um, well, I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram at PM Iscove. Uh, you can also listen to my podcast with Kenny Nybart, a uh, podcast like it's 1999, where we cover the films of 1999. Uh, and then if you feel so inclined, we would uh, love you to subscribe to our Patreon, which where we are covering the films of 1989, a uh, podcast like it's uh, 1989, where you can find on patreon.com. Um, you know, and uh, and otherwise, I, I don't know. I mean, you can hopefully someday uh, I'll be writing some stuff that you'll get to see and, and you know, like that. Are there any movies about writing that Phil and I missed? Let us know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to next week's show. If you like what you hear on Force 5, tell your friends and family, review the show. Look, I know you got a lot of like Christmas stuff coming up. There's going to be some lulls in conversation. Just blurt it out there. Force 5. Or just say, hey, guys, what do you think your top five movies about writing are? Because uh, there's this podcast that talks about that kind of stuff. So much conversation can come from this podcast. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane and go watch some movies about writing. Force 5.